The read, reading is taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 9, and beginning at verse 1 up to verse 17. Uh, it will come up on your screen. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zura, the son of Becherah, the son of Aphia, of, of, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached this district of Zaph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in the town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to, to, to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to the servant, Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some girls coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now, he has just come to our town today for the people to, to sacrifice at the high, high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited to eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him leader over all people of Israel. He will deliver my people from the land of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Samuel, when Sa oh, sorry, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, 
This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. We carry on our reading in chapter 10 from verse 17 to 27. So that's on page 280. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come yet, come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. This is the word of the Lord. Two whole chapters today, so that was a selection to give you the flavour of it. But for that reason, it, it would help me if you're if you're up for it to get uh, sight of that in the Bibles, because there's bits that weren't read that I might uh, feel inclined to refer to. So if you have a Bible near you and can get to uh, page two seven nine. That will stand us in good stead. I never quite know what to do when we're trying to cover two whole chapters. You don't want all of it read, but you want to be able to refer to it. So let's have that open, page uh, 278, isn't it? 1 Samuel, chapter 9, and we're slated to cover down to the end of chapter 10. It's too much to read in one go. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look further into his word. We thank you, Lord, for preserving these uh, events, the account of them, for us in Holy Scripture. We thank you for the way these words have blessed countless generations down the years, and we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us now as we turn afresh to them. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today marks the 
end um, of our current series, the end point in 1 Samuel, we're going to, I guess, put it on the back burner and come back to it in the future. But it seemed to me that it made sense, therefore, to pull the threads together and review the first ten chapters of the book, because our people sort of step in and out of a series and just help us to, to get a sense of the ground we've covered. And today we've reached a bit of a hinge point in the plot line, because one character has dominated up to today, Samuel, but in today's section he's joined by the next lead character, Saul. And I suppose we could call it the tale of two citizens, uh, two great men who lived at the same time in the same country. If they were living today, if you want to let your mind run riot, um, in this country, instead of Israel 3,000 years ago, one of them might have been Archbishop and the other Prime Minister, Saul, uh, Saul the Prime Minister figure, Samuel, the Archbishop equivalent figure. That's not 100% accurate, but hopefully it gives you a sense of their significance at least. To review the, the ground that we've covered over the last couple of months, let's think first about Samuel. And in case you haven't noticed, he is a huge figure in the story of God's people. He's sometimes called the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He had one great advantage in life, a mother who prayed for him. You can't ask for a better start in life than that. Her name was Hannah, and she dedicated Samuel to God from the start. That meant that he was sent off at an early age to the sanctuary. Anybody who um, was dispatched off to boarding school early in life as a child might have some sense of what it was like for him. Only in this case, the headmaster figure was in his 90s and practically blind. Eli was his name. He was high priest at Shiloh. And Samuel owed a lot to that man, Eli. There was a point where God called Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel didn't have a clue that God was speaking until Eli gave him the words to pray. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. No one's ever too young to pray like that in response to God's voice. So Eli, hugely significant in Samuel. Uh, on top of Hannah, the praying mother, Eli was another hugely significant spiritual influence. You'll know that the country was in a mess at the time. The religious leaders were at best compromised. More likely they were greedy and idle. The judges were so corrupt and twisted that they would have had no problem hiding behind a spiral staircase. Israel needed someone to call men and women back to God. And that became Samuel's task as soon as he was old enough. Up and down the country he went, making known the forgotten laws of God and reawakening a faith that seemed to have gone to sleep. We read that the Lord was with Samuel and allowed none of his words to fall to the ground. Everything he said found its target, zeroing in on people's minds, consciences, and hearts. But don't miss the spring from which that mighty river of communication from God began. It started very small, with that boy in the sanctuary praying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. What an answer to that prayer. God spoke to Samuel, and then God spoke through Samuel to all Israel. So that's the background in citizen number one, Samuel. 
Okay, fast forward now to the end of Samuel's life. What's going to happen at that point, we wonder. Interestingly, it's almost a carbon copy of what happened with Eli. You might remember if you were here earlier on in the series, how Eli's sons didn't inherit Eli's spiritual genes. Hophni and Phinehas were their names. And old Samuel couldn't pass on spiritual leadership to his children either, to Joel and Abijah. So when he was old, it's clear they were corrupt too. They weren't going to be his successors, as it were. Cue the leadership of Israel to make a bold request to Samuel, old Samuel. You're old, they say, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now that's where you got to last week, I think. And you'll remember that God was not pleased with that request. He was displeased. Not because they want a king but because of their motivation for wanting one. They want a king instead of God, rather than a king under God. In their desires to be like other nations, they're actually rejecting God's kingship over them. That was what set them apart from other nations, that God was their ruler. And they were supposed to demonstrate that by obeying God's word. Even the king was supposed to obey God's word. A king under God's rule. But now they want a king like other nations. A king instead of God. Not a king under God. So they're asking, if you want technical terms for it, they're asking for a monarchy when they should be after a theocracy. God on the throne. As demonstrated by obedience to God's word. From top, the king to bottom in the nation. Okay, so that's a revision of what's happened up to this point. Now, what do our two chapters today add to that? Well, let's start at chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. So not only does he have some good breeding, you've got his family tree there, and a good reputation to go with it, he's also tall, dark, and handsome. He looks every inch a leader, judging superficially. The question is, will he be a people's choice ruler, like the other nations, or a ruler under God's rule, by divine appointment? And that's really the question our readings wanted to explore. The answer to that question is that by involving the prophet Samuel in the appointment of Saul as king, God is making it clear that Saul is his appointment. Now, that extraordinary story that Susan read, the whole elaborate story where Saul's father's donkeys get lost, that's designed to make the point. We're thinking as we read it, oh, silly old donkeys wandering off. Well, yes, but actually God stands behind the silly old donkeys getting lost. And the places Saul searched with all those unpronounceable names ending up in Zuff at just the time when Samuel was arriving there on his circuit. And you've got all the other factors that uh, 
mixed into the story. The servant who has enough pluck to disagree with his master and suggest a plan B option. Or those young women who know Samuel's exact location. They're coming down the hill to get water at just the right moment. All these little factors in the storyline. And Samuel himself bumping into the donkey search party as they come in the city gates. It's God's timing at every twist and turn in the storyline. From the donkey's decision onwards. Maybe it's a subtle picture of the dumbass thinking behind Israel's wanting a king. That all hinges on these donkeys. God is overruling it all. There's no such thing as a coincidence. He is on the throne over all the ifs, buts and maybes of our lives. I just wonder if that's the one thing somebody here needs to know today. That God is directing your steps. Sometimes you look back on life and you can see it then, can't you? Even if you can't see it now or peering off into the future. It's certainly clear that God was at work in this account. Let me read on a bit. Um, This is a key moment, verses 15 to 17 of chapter 9. This is where the sort of curtain gets lifted and you see that God's hand is at work. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, The Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So God cues it up with Samuel before he meets Saul. And then God tells Samuel again when he actually sees Saul. You get the point? No question. This is God's appointment. He's doing it. Saul is actually very unsure of himself. He's from the smallest tribe. They'd actually almost been wiped out at the end of Judges. And we heard later on that plenty of people around in his time despised him. Some scoundrels are mentioned at the end of chapter 10. Can this fellow save us? But Samuel was not in any doubt. This is God's person. Look what happens as Samuel and Saul leave the town together. This bit wasn't read to us. This is from 9 verse 27 into the start of chapter 10. This is 1 Samuel 9, verse 27, a bit we didn't have read before. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Um, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? So he's been given a message from God. And now he passes that message on to Saul. Complete with all the oil on the head. Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? God has done it. And his word to Samuel settles it. Now we don't need to unpack it going through the whole of chapter 10 as well but the same point is being made in what follows more coincidental meetings 
which are anything but coincidental. They're laid on by God. Then, a completely unlikely thing, when suddenly Saul is anointed by the Spirit and he prophesies. Obviously, God's word is at work through him there. Then it's that bit we did have read. It's national lottery time, live on prime time. And would you believe it, first it's the tribe of Benjamin, then it's the clan of Matri, then let's narrow it down a bit more, it's Kish's family, then it's Saul. And he's inclined to say, well, no way, there must be some mistake, he's off hiding somewhere, but everybody else is 100% convinced. They ran and brought him out, verse 23, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. However, don't miss that important epilogue to the whole coronation ceremony. Verse 25, do you spot this as it was read? Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. In other words, God is on the throne, first and foremost. The people and the king are under the authority of Samuel as the prophet of the Lord. They are accountable to God's law. So it's not a monarchy. It's a theocracy. Okay, so that's how far we've got. And if you know the sequel... Sadly, Saul proves to be a disappointment precisely because he doesn't do what Samuel says. That means he doesn't obey God. He is not a king under God's rule. So within a few chapters, just a few chapters, the prophet Samuel is anointing another king. This is almost Samuel's last great act, isn't it? To anoint David. But even he, a man after God's own heart, is going to fall short of the ideal. And as you read on in the narrative through the rest of the Old Testament, that pattern continues. The next one, Solomon, goes after foreign gods. When you get as far as one and two kings in the Bible, do you remember this? There's a split in the land at that point. And you've got two kings for the price of one. One up in the north, one in the south in Jerusalem. And as you read the account in 1 and 2 Kings, you go north-south, north-south, north-south. And every time, no king matches up. Until, of course, Jesus Christ breaks onto the scene, preaching the kingdom of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is fulfilled. Repent and believe the good news. He might as well have said, The kingdom of God is fulfilled, i.e. the king, Jesus, has come. Of course, it wasn't just his preaching. He lived and died under the word of God, obeying his heavenly father, always doing what pleased him. Quite unlike most other leadership, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as we're going to remember in a moment in communion. So not bulldozing others to gratify himself. That's often the model in leadership, isn't it? Instead, he was willing to be flattened in the service of others, dying for their sin, paying for their sin in full. That's the kind of king 
that Jesus Christ is. Then rising again to show he really does have God's approval as king. I can't read 1 Samuel in the account of Saul being made king without wanting to read on to the great king that Jesus Christ was and is. Well, so what, you might be wondering. That's a lovely explanation of the first ten chapters of 1 Samuel uh, in record speed. Let me point you once more just to conclude to that epilogue I mentioned a few moments ago. Verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Do you see there that Samuel had to apply the word of God to the people, not just to the king? I think that's probably the take-home message for us today. We're all going to be dismissed to our homes like they were in that day then, in a little while. In fact, it almost has something of a, a summer holiday feeling, doesn't it? Will we take that sense of God's rule with us as we go? Will you have Jesus as your Lord? And will that show, here's my challenge for you, over the summer in a renewed determination to read his word and to live his word because Jesus Christ is our king. And I've told that story before about two children that were doing a jigsaw and they're making a terrible mess of the jigsaw. It's supposed to be a picture of a royal court with the king and all his attendants gathered around. But to the, the children that are doing the puzzle, it was just a jumble of pieces. They were all over the place. Until one of them snuck a look at the picture on the box's lid. I see the mistake we've been making, they said. Let's begin by putting the king in the middle. And of course, as soon as they got that, it began to make sense. They had a picture instead of a puzzle. And you and I have got to get the king central, or life will always be a mess, a puzzle. And maybe that can start afresh today at communion, as we remind ourselves that he is a saviour king. It's wonderful news, isn't it? We, we come to communion, we're reminded that no failure is final, no sin need remain unforgiven, if we'll only repent. And the future can be different if we live purposefully by his word, under his rule. We've got to get the king who loved us enough to die for us central in our lives. And then wonderfully when we do that, everything else in life begins to slot into place. Well, let's pray uh, before we prepare for communion in a moment. We want to bow before you as we've already sung, acknowledging, Lord God, that you are on the throne. And we thank you for exalting the Lord Jesus Christ to your right hand on high, that he shares that throne with you. We thank you that he came and conquered all our worst enemies in his life and supremely when he died on the cross. And we pray, uh, humbly bowing before him as our rightful ruler today. We want to say, as they said in Saul's day, of the Lord Jesus. Long live the King. Eternity will not be enough to praise 
our wonderful Saviour and Ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray you'd help us to live that way. Uh, Even as we come to communion now, we pray that his loving service of us would warm our hearts and bend our wills to live for him and to bow to him in every aspect of life. We pray for the honour and glory of our great Saviour and King, the Lord Jesus, in his name. Amen.